Amen. What a wonderful message and what a wonderful truth. Prayer does matter. At this time, we'll dismiss the children to Children's Church. I see Miss Amy over here to my left and to your right, and I know some of the kids have already met them out in the hallway, but it'd be a good time if kids would like to go that way. It is a blessing to have each of you with us this morning. I will say I apologize for the technical difficulties we had with this TV screen over here uh, to your right, and uh, I actually uh, we'll, we'll get that fixed before next week, so that was... Uh, an issue we did not plan on this morning. My guess is that most of us are pretty familiar with the gunfight at the OK Corral. It is perhaps the most infamous Wild West gunfight ever recorded. Countless movies have been made. In fact, one was televised just last night as I was flipping through the channels. And stories have been written uh, about this over the past century and a half in various newspapers and uh, books. Although much of what we have seen in Hollywood has been fictionalized, because we always need to make it just a little more exciting, I guess, this is mostly based on a true story that took place in a town called Tombstone, Arizona. It's located about 30 miles north of the Mexican border and one of the largest Wild West towns of its day. In 1879, there were about 100 residents in Tombstone. Catch that, in 1879, 100 residents. But by 1881, just two years later, the town had exploded in growth with over 7,000 people calling Tombstone their home. That is a fast-growing city. But Tombstone was less than ideal as a place to live and raise a family. It is said that to accommodate the 7,000 plus residents, there were fancy restaurants, a bowling alley, an ice house, two banks, and four churches. But there were also 110 saloons, 14 gambling halls, and numerous brothels. Sounds like a very wholesome place to raise your family, doesn't it? And with such tremendous numerical growth, crime naturally would become a problem. In fact, it was not unusual to have the evening disrupted by a gunfight in the middle of the street among drunken townspeople or cowboys. By the way, the term cowboy was a derogatory term at that point. Honest men who worked with horses and cattle were referred to as ranchers or cattle herders, but there was no shortage of cowboys. Horse thieves who would often be credited with robbing stagecoaches and killing travelers. They often were known in this particular area to cross over the Mexican border, to steal alcohol and to steal cattle, then bring it back to Tombstone and sell it at a discounted rate. Well, there's much more to the story I don't have time to cover here today. But can you see how this town was a powder keg that was just waiting for something incredible to take place? The primary characters in the gunfight that took place at the OK Corral were the Clanton family and the McLaury family as outlaw cowboys. And then the Earp family. Most of you have heard of Wyatt Earp. Actually, the marshal was not Wyatt Earp at that time. It was his brother, Virgil Earp, and their friend, Doc Holliday, 
who were, they were all either marshals or they were assistants legally deputized to serve as law enforcement. At around 3 p.m. on Wednesday, October 26, 1881, a gunfight broke out that would rock this growing town. You know, there was an awful lot that led up to this explosive day. Looking back, you could see all the things that were building up to this day, and many claimed that this gunfight could have been avoided had things been handled differently ahead of time. Others suggested it was inevitable regardless. Well, I begin here this morning with this story because there is also something that lies ahead for each of us that is inevitable. And while we don't live in a town with only four churches and 110 saloons, there is no doubt that the sin and immorality of our world has led to an incredible tension that is even affecting those outside of the church. The scriptures reveal that there will come a day when all of these things will come to a head. We will not have to face the world we live in today for forever. In that moment, there will be a great showdown between good and evil, between darkness and light, and yes, even between life and death. In fact, although that day has not yet come, I would suggest to you that these battles are already being waged. The stage is already being set for that final day of judgment. We're not talking about a gunfight. We're talking about the day where God will put an end to all the craziness that has been taking place and happening around us for so long. The scriptures teach about such a reckoning with the Lord. The disciples asked often about when that day would come. And Jesus gave multiple allusions as to what it would look like. And while Revelation is known as an apocalyptic writing, pointing to the end times or the second coming of Christ, we actually see the day of God's judgment foreshadowed all the way back even in the Old Testament. And while there will be those who grieve over such a day, for those of us who are ready for eternity... This is our single greatest hope. This is the day we look forward to. It is the promised reward that ought to drive us. Can you imagine a day where there is no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain? Can you imagine a day with no more temptation, no more regret, no more loss? Can you imagine a day when we get to see Jesus face to face and to merely be able to bask in his presence? The great hymn writer declared, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And when he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. To tell you the truth, there is a big part of me that just can't wait until that day comes. But there's also a part of me that doesn't want it to come just yet. And that's because there are so many people that I still love that if he were to come back today, they would not be ready. The Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse 
into what the resurrection will actually be like, as recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read a few verses from that to you today, beginning in verse 20. Again, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what it says. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Now I know that we're talking about the second coming, the coming resurrection for those who are in Christ Jesus, but this passage immediately takes my mind back to the resurrection that has already occurred. Yes, there is a resurrection that will come, but there's already a resurrection that has taken place. As I read, my mind is drawn back to the Easter story, as we spend a lot of time talking about the resurrection of Jesus. But humanity is also destined to rise again. The reality is, the moment Adam and Eve committed sin, Death became a part of our story. Every one of us, the wages of sin has always been death from the moment sin entered the world. And as such, every one of us will die at some point unless the day of God's judgment comes sooner. But that doesn't have to be the end for us. Death was not the end for Jesus. In fact, as prophesied back in the Old Testament and even by Jesus himself, Jesus conquered death when he rose again from the grave. But he didn't just conquer death for himself. He conquered death for you and for me, for all of humanity. So we all will likely still have to deal with a physical death just as Jesus did. We all likely will see the grave unless the Lord chooses to return even sooner. But following a physical death, there is life that awaits all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That statement there in the passage I read from 1 Corinthians, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. It is such a beautiful thought. It almost gives you the idea that we've never truly experienced real life like we will in that day. Everything we experience until then is tainted by sin and its effects. What all of this means is that death is not the end for those who are in Christ Jesus. I told you several weeks ago that there is coming a day where probably all of us will die soon. I made the statement that every year that I have been in ministry, we have had at least one person from the church die. I've been in ministry for 29 years, which means that by this time next year, one individual in this room, it is likely, will no longer be with us or in the second service. But that does not mean that there is an end. Instead, in many ways, that will be just another beginning. Death is not the end for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we'll come back to this idea of death not being the end in just a moment. But first, let me address the fact that there is an end. I've heard it said since I was a child that one day Christ will return and judge humanity. I've heard it 
I've heard that it could be very soon. Many preachers, in fact, have often pointed to a specific time that they thought it might come. But to the events, the reality is with those preachers pointing that specific date, sometimes not picking out a date, but rather pointing to the events that are happening around us. For example, as Y2K approached, even among secular philosophers, there were those who anticipated and they claimed that the world was coming to an end. In 2012, there was supposedly a unique alignment of planets. By the way, it didn't happen, but it doesn't matter. People claimed that in 2012, some type of Armageddon-type event was going to take place. And there have always been those who have looked at various political candidates who have come into power, and they've led us to believe that they were possibly the Antichrist, and therefore... The end must be near. But here we are today, and Christ has still not come. In fact, although there are many who, in fact, do believe that the end is near, there are also many others out there who now question whether such a dramatic event will ever truly take place. For generations, people have believed that the Lord was coming back in their own lifetimes, it hasn't happened yet. So what makes you think that it's going to happen in your lifetime? The only thing that I can say is that, actually, I got two things to say. Number one, if the scriptures say it, it will happen. And the reason I say that is because God has been faithful and every other promise he has made, he will keep. He has kept. And that means the ones that haven't come yet, it doesn't mean he didn't fulfill it. It just means it hasn't gotten here yet. The scripture is actually very clear. There is such a day of judgment that is coming. But one other thing I'd like to share with you is the scriptures are clear as to what is to come, what it will actually look like, although not so clear about when it will come. Listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew 24. Beginning in verse 3, it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from their faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I'll be honest with you, that's a pretty detailed description of what we should expect. What will be the sign of your coming? The end of the age. 
Notice that there is no debate whether Jesus is coming back in this conversation. The question is not, will you come back, but how will we know that you're about to come back? That is already a settled issue. The Lord will return. The question is when. And of course, Jesus gives a variety of answers. I've selected about seven or eight of them that I just want to point out to you just for a moment. By the way, there are about 10 of them actually in here, and I would suggest all of these are being fulfilled as we speak. Many will come in my name. <coughs> Excuse me. Wars, rumors of wars, even civil wars, famines, earthquake, persecution of the church, a great falling away, and the gospel being preached throughout the entire world. I suggest to you that all of these are happening right now. In fact, they've been happening for some time. The church is so divided today, yet everyone claims to come in the name of the Lord. In fact, there have even been those who have claimed to be the Lord himself, to be Christ. Who in this group can remember a man named Jim Jones? Or another man named David Koresh. There are certainly other less notorious individuals who have done the same thing, claiming to be the Messiah. Wars and rumors of wars are constant. Often they are on the other side of the planet. So therefore we don't feel like they threaten us very much, but they are nonetheless there. And I would suggest that they will be there until the very end. Famine. It continues to grow across the world. According to an organization called Concern USA, at the end of 2021, approximately 193 million people experienced acute hunger. And as the economy continues to falter, and as crops fail around the world, the number is expected to grow even more in the year ahead. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, there are estimated to be about 500,000 detectable earthquakes each year, with as many as 100 of them causing significant damage. Several years ago, I was providing marriage counseling at my church in Pennsylvania when an earthquake actually took place. It was actually centered in northern Virginia, several hours away, yet we felt it where we were. We completed that marriage counseling outside at a picnic table because we knew we did not want to stay inside. The point is, these things are happening now. Add to this the persecution that takes place around the world, and so often we think we've got it so rough, but the truth is there are others around the world that wish they could meet in a place like this in the freedom that we have to be able to worship. Persecution is not something that only takes place around the world, but it is more significant in other places. But it also takes place even here. It talks about a great falling away that will take place. And unfortunately, we see even that happening now. There's no doubt that the things that we're talking about, they're all happening right now. And so as not to skip this last one, I think this one's really, really important. You know, 50 years ago, the idea of the gospel being preached throughout the entire world seemed like a lost cause, a hopeless thing. How could the gospel be preached everywhere? It seems impossible. But since then, technology has exploded with opportunity. And today, 
I can preach this sermon with people listening in 70 plus countries all at the same time around the world. Maybe it's not so hopeless anymore. And then, according to Jesus, the end will come. It's not that it might, it will. What will that look like? I'm not 100% sure. There are those who claim that it will be some type of natural disaster that will be out of our control. We know that there was a time where there was a great flood and the Lord promised he would not flood the earth again, but that doesn't mean there couldn't be some other type of natural disaster. Some have hypothesized that it may be caused by some debris from outer space. Others have suggested that it might be a man-made disaster, which is certainly possible as we're pretty good at destroying things. And God is not beyond using our foolishness to accomplish his purposes. I can remember as a teenager hearing about something called nuclear disarmament, yet nuclear weapons are still real today, just as real as they were back then. Or maybe it will be none of the above. Maybe in the midst of all the craziness that already exists, the Lord will simply return and separate the saved from the unsaved, the lost from the found. Listen again to Jesus' words from that same chapter in Matthew 24. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two, men will be grind two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, most of us have probably heard of the Left Behind series. It actually began with a series of books, and then they uh, turned it into a movie series as well, which depicts what Jesus is describing here in this passage. It will likely start as an ordinary day, but this day will be far from ordinary. It will be very different. It will be like the thousands of people who woke up on September 11th, 2001, and they went into work, assuming that today would be just like any other day but it was not. Well, the day of Christ's return will be far more significant. We're not talking about a few thousand people. We're talking about all of humanity. Can you picture the despair and the hopelessness for those who remain? Can you picture the millions of questions that will run through the minds of those who are left behind? I picture scientists attempting to rationalize the disappearance of so many people. I picture loved ones grieving the loss of their family. 
I picture many questioning whether maybe it's too late for them to be saved as well. But that's why Jesus said, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. In fact, I plead with you now. I do not know the day nor the hour that the Lord will return, but now is the time to make sure that you are ready. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Choose to serve him, not just for today, but for every day moving forward. And whenever the Lord chooses to return, you can be at peace with that moment, knowing that you are ready. The truth is that all of this sounds really dark. In fact, often this type of message has been used to scare people into the kingdom of heaven. It is dark in a manner. We're talking about one being taken and one being left. We're talking about the judgment of God coming upon those who are not yet ready for eternity. And according to the book of Revelation, we're talking about eternal punishment, a lake of fire, which is referred to as the second death. It does seem dark, but there is a beautiful side to this too. As difficult as it is to hear of the wrath of God that is poured out on unbelievers, there is a promise of grace to all those who are in Christ Jesus. Back to the original passage from 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, beginning in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. And always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That is talking about the perishable and the imperishable, the flesh versus the spirit. And I want you to understand exactly what this is saying. Perishable means that it can die. It likely will die. Imperishable means it cannot die. These human bodies of flesh, they will eventually give way. They will die. But the spirit that dwells within each of us, having been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, Our spirits will live forever. We're talking about the impossibility of death. But it's not the flesh that will get us into heaven. It is the cleansed spirit. And this beauty, the beauty in this is that it tells us that a transformation will take place. 
says that we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. How many of y'all have worn out your bodies? Don't raise your hands. How many of y'all are ready for the imperishable, for the perishable to become imperishable? I am. And I look forward to the day when all that is broken and imperfect today is made whole in Jesus Christ. And suddenly the words of Hosea 13, 14 will become reality. That's what we read just a moment ago. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? This will not be the end. Instead, this will be a new beginning for all those who are in Christ Jesus. So again, it's not something to fear or dread. It is something to look forward to with a sense of anticipation. Death will no longer have mastery over you and me. And that's because sin will no longer have mastery over us either. Praise the Lord for that. And what will this new beginning be like? Well, I already told you that it will include eternal life because the perishable is going to become imperishable. The mortal becomes immortal. There's more to it than that. You see, living forever is only a small part, which is really hard to imagine. Living forever is only a small part of what awaits us. The book of Revelation is an attempt by John to describe a vision that he receives from God. But I want you to think for a moment, put yourselves in the shoes of John. He is seeing the beauty of heaven, and then he tries to describe it. He's never seen such beauty, nor has anyone else on earth. Yet he attempts to put it into human terms, exactly how majestic and beautiful everything truly is. Talk about an impossible task. If you want to take a few moments and read through Revelation, I encourage you to do so. You'll see some amazing descriptions. But I want to show you just a couple verses from Hebrews 12 that will maybe give you a glimpse of what heaven will be like. Hebrews 12, verse 22 and 23 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The Bible pass, this Bible passage is rich with beautiful and detailed descriptions of heaven. The city of the living God will be a spectacular place according to God's perfect design. As one writer puts it, the heavenly Jerusalem will be a place of unimagined blessing. Those who are registered in heaven, those who have been made perfect by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, those who have their names written down in the Lamb's book of life, they will assemble with an innumerable company of angels before the most holy God. Try and picture the multitudes spread out before the living God is amazing. And altogether, it is incomprehensible. How can you put into words such beauty and power? Mount Zion, the city of David, 
and the eternal possession of God most high will be the holy city where all will assemble to worship him. You know, there is a coming a day where even those who do not know Jesus Christ, they too will be forced to worship. We are told that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those who hate the Lord will be forced to bow before him. Jeremiah 3.17 says, At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. That's what heaven is going to be like. But it's not just the beauty of the place, heaven. It's who's going to be there. Man, we're going to be surrounded by some great people. Hebrews 12, specifically in verse 1, talks about a great cloud of witnesses identifying the many saints who have gone on before us. Can you imagine sitting down next to the Apostle Paul? Or maybe it's not a biblical character. Maybe it's Billy Graham. Or maybe someone completely different. Maybe for you, it's your loved one who has already gone home to be with the Lord. Do you look forward to once again standing alongside your loved one as you worship the Lord together? But, but again, it's not just the other people that will make heaven what it is. There's one person in particular that will make all the difference. And obviously I'm talking about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says that, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been known fully. And in 1 John 3, 2, we read that, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears but we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And then finally, in Revelation 1-7, we see that he comes with clouds and every eye will see him. As he comes on those clouds, it will be like a beautiful processional. The king is coming. Some of y'all probably got up yesterday morning and you watched the coronation of a new king in England. The coronation of King Charles III was quite an event to watch on TV, but it was nothing compared to the coronation of Christ. His coronation has already taken place. Do you remember when Jesus approached Jerusalem and the people shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, to whom? To the king. And do you remember the sign that was hung over him on that cross, identifying him as the king of the Jews? And they even placed a crown on his head. Well, when the true king returns, it will make everything that you saw yesterday seem minuscule, unimportant. It will be an incredible moment. But here's the coolest part. We're not just talking about a one-time event. You know, for most of the people who were present yesterday at King Charles's coronation, this was the first and only time that they will be able to experience 
being in the presence of the king. But for all eternity, we will experience the resurrected king, Jesus Christ. And I'm excited about seeing certain people. There are some of the some of the biblical heroes, man, I am so excited about being able to ask them questions. I mean, some of the things that they saw, I want to talk to the disciples. When Jesus talked to some of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, what was it like to see him put them in their place? I want to be able to ask about the feeding of the 5,000. Were there really just 5,000 people there or were there even more? But I want to talk to some of the Old Testament guys too. I believe the Lord has redeemed even those individuals. As much as I look forward to being with them, it pales in comparison to the promise of being with Jesus. Y'all have heard me share it before, but my favorite verse of scripture comes from Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as my father, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. That's Jesus giving us the promise that one day we get to go and sit down on the lap of Jesus. What an incredible privilege that will be for us to be in his presence. All right, so let me close with this. I'm not actually done, so don't get too excited there. There are two things that I wanted to accomplish this morning with today's sermon. First, if you are already prepared for the return of Christ, let me challenge you to stay faithful. Our passage back in 1 Corinthians closed with this admonition. Listen to it. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, that means they're already a part of this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In light of the hope that you have, you must stand firm. You must stay faithful. So easy for us to get distracted. So easy for us to look at the difficulty that we face. Or look at the people around us who maybe they've not remained faithful. And it's so easy for us to take our eyes off of the one hope that we have. Don't get so distracted by the craziness of your world and therefore lose sight of what this is all about. The other part of this is for the one who perhaps does not yet know Jesus. I told you earlier that no man knows the day nor the hour. So I'm not going to try to tell you that Jesus is coming back today. It could be today. Or it could be a thousand years from now. But I will tell you that according to the passages that I shared with you earlier, it would seem that the day is incredibly close. If you are not yet ready for that day, you cannot afford to wait. Our passage talked about a great trumpet blast. And there's a part of me that wanted to have someone sneak in the back of the congregation today and blast a trumpet right now. If a trumpet were to suddenly blow, would you panic 
and immediately feel the need to confess in hopes of slipping into the back door of heaven? Or are you ready right now? I heard a story many years ago of uh, two guys who were driving and uh, as they're driving together, the person in the, the passenger seat um, agreed to stay up so he could help the driver stay awake as they drove. And shortly after the individual got into the driver's seat, he looked over and the guy sound asleep beside him. <laughs> and after about an hour of this guy snoring and sleeping and not really aware of anything going on, the driver pulls into a truck stop. And he sees an 18-wheeler that is parked, but with the lights on. And he pulls up very slowly in front of this 18-wheeler. And suddenly, now I don't care, you can be doing two miles an hour. If you hit the brakes really hard, everything jerks. And he decided to slam on the brakes. And he screams, ah! And the guy opened his eyes, and the response he got was, Lord, forgive me. Because he thought for sure that was the end. I'm afraid that if the Lord were to return today, that there might even be those who are in the church that might suddenly feel the need to seek his forgiveness. Now I want you to know my God is full of grace. He's got more grace than I do, and I am so grateful for that. But according to the scripture, what I see here is that at that moment, it will be too late. And the right thing to do is to make sure today that you are ready. What that means is that we need to confess our sins before the Lord. Ask him to forgive us. And then to determine to live for him until the day that he returns. This is more than just saying some prayer. This is every day standing firm, living in such a way that says, God, if you're coming back today, I am ready for you. And then tomorrow, Lord, if you come back today, I am ready for you. And every day moving forward, making sure that our hearts are ready for him. If you're already ready, stand firm. Get your eyes fixed on what it ought to be fixed on, which is the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're not ready, today is the day to make sure you are. If you will, bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we are grateful for your grace. We know that the second coming brings both fear and excitement. There's an element of fear for our loved ones that do not yet know you, or maybe even for some who are here today that might not know you. Lord, I pray today that if there be one here that does not know you, that right now they would confess their sins and that you would cleanse them from that sin. Lord, that you would allow them to be able to look forward to your second coming, not with fear, but with excitement. Lord, I pray for our loved ones today who do not yet know you. Lord, I pray that you would give us a boldness to proclaim the truth, believing that it really could be today. Lord, help us to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who need it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not become distracted. Lord, so many times we get caught up in all of the 
foolishness that goes on around us. We look at the politics. We look at the foolishness within our families. We look at the economy. We look at all of the other things. And it's so easy to get our eyes off of you. Lord, I pray right now that you would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, help us to continually look forward to your coming. Again, with every head bowed and eye closed, I would just ask, is there anyone in here today that would say, Pastor, if the Lord were to come today, I I am not ready, but I want to be ready. I don't want to fear this. I want to make sure that I am ready. If that's you, would you just raise your hand, and I want to be able to pray specifically for you. Thank you. Anyone else? Father, I pray right now for your forgiveness, your grace. Lord, if that trumpet blasts today, we've got one more individual who just declared they are ready. Lord, I pray that you would forgive them and that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. And from this moment forward, allow them to walk in such a way that they bring honor and glory to you. Lord, we praise you because you are a forgiving and just God. You are a gracious God. Lord, I pray now that you would give us a confidence that when that day comes, we're ready. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us to be able to celebrate God's goodness and grace. If you do not yet know Jesus, come talk to me. I'd love to be able to talk with you about it. Thank you for being here.